You're listening to Radio Maria and welcome to today's Questions of Faith. Today I would like to welcome into the studio Sister Gemma Simmons, who we have had so many times before. Welcome again, Sister Gemma. It's lovely to be here again. And Sister Gemma, just to remind you, is from the Congregation of Jesus and is a senior fellow at Margaret Beaufort Institute and is a director of the Religious Life Institute. I also want to welcome Father Tony, Father Tony Rogers. Hello. Good morning. Uh, lovely to be with you yet again. Thank you, I Father think. Tony. It's so That's nice to have pleasure. you. That's and, a pleasure. and just to remind you, Father Tony is parish priest of Our Lady and St. Peter in Aldebra. Sister Gemma, would you start with a prayer for us? Surely. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in us the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and we shall be created and you will renew the face of the earth. O God, who's taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by the gift of the same spirit we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in your consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. The first question we have today is one that I'm sure many people have sympathy or experience with. I lost a family member to dementia. My relative lost capacity to remember, to communicate. Sometimes I worry about this. How do we go to heaven when so much of who we are, that is our memories, our personality and the rest, can be lost in illnesses like this. And Sister Gemma, if you could start. Oh, that's such a poignant question, isn't it? And, you know, I lived with my father who had dementia for 10 years and it was utterly heartbreaking to see the person that we knew and loved gradually disappearing from in front of our eyes. So I can very readily sympathise with the, the question of um, our listener. Um, but I would say from my own experience that even though, you know, the person that my father was, was no longer with us, it was still him. <laughs> it was his memories that were lost, but it was him searching for them. It was his inability to recognise people that had diminished, but it was still his eyes looking at us to try and, you know, remember. And I think we need to remember, and I hope are comforted by the idea that we are made in God's image and likeness. And God's image, God's likeness is never lost because God never changes. And in a sense, we, we're faced with the same thing when we look at a very old person who is diminished by sickness and an extremely young person. When we look at a newborn baby, in a sense, there's nothing there. There's just a little blob. You know, there's this little person wriggling like a frog and there are no memories there. There's no capacity to communicate in terms of words. But my goodness, there's a person there and there's a personality even if it's completely unformed, we can see that this is a person in his or her own right. Now, in a tiny baby, we know that that personality is going to come through, as it were. In a very elderly person with dementia, we know that that personality has, as it were, 
gone into hibernation. But I think both of those personalities, the one that is in potential and the one that is suffering diminishment, are held in God's love as God's image and likeness. God recognises that person, knows them through and through, both at the beginning and at the end. And therefore, I think there is nothing for us in that sense to be afraid of, either for our loved ones or indeed ourselves, because that personality, that history, all of it is held in God's love and all of it is held in an eternal now. And nothing is lost. It may be lost to them in terms of their present physical mental capacity. It may be lost to us in the sense that they can no longer communicate as they did. But it's they are still the sum of their experiences, the sum of their memories. Nothing can take that away because it's a life that's been lived and nothing can wipe that off the map ever. So in, in that sense, however diminished our loved ones may seem to us, they are still rich with personality and rich with identity in God's love. Thank you. Father Tony. I'm so pleased, Gemma, that you linked babies with uh, elderly people with dementia because it, it, it's, it's absolutely right that communication uh, can seem difficult at both ends. Uh, and, and for some people, their life is led like that all the way through. Uh, I remember a friend of mine gave birth in her life to four children, three of whom were born with, with really, really serious mental limitations. And uh, when, when a purpose-built hospital was, was put up near them, um, the three children in that situation were, were cared for there. And this poor mum, at one stage, she said, I just got so, so frustrated that I wasn't getting through in any way at all, that I felt it was a waste of time going in. And, and you know, I just, I got so angry with God. And she said, one day, I, I let it all out to one of the nurses. And one of the nurses just kind of put me in my place and said, have you ever noticed how much they love you with their eyes. And that's a phrase that's always stuck with me because all human beings, whatever their limitations, whether it be in old age, in infancy, or throughout life, have that capacity which is not always easily recognised by us, but, but says something to us about the love of God. I think the other bit of the question is also important to focus on for a moment or two, which was how do we get to heaven when so much of who we are, that is our memories, personality and the rest, will be lost in illnesses like this? Well, as you said, Gemma, you know, for God, it's the eternal present. There's no yesterday, today or tomorrow. But I think the whole understanding of, of our faith and of our faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that there is a completion in all of us that is to come. That whatever 
shortcomings there may be, whatever limitations. And one of the things which I always try and focus on is the questions that we ask while we're on this earth. We spend our life being frustrated because we don't know the answers. And part of the promise, I believe, of, of, of eternal life and of life beyond this grave is that those questions will be answered. All our tears will be wiped away and we shall see God as he really is. And I think that is about the babies who die in infancy. It's about those who live with handicap and limitations through their life and difficulties and about those with dementia. Heaven is not about all those kind of limitations wandering around. It's about fulfilled people, people that we will know ourselves to the full and others to the full. Hope that helps. Thank you both. As you were both speaking, I was thinking we we are not just our body and our brain, are we? We're no. it's it's part of Oh, there's so much more to us and yeah. and it's lovely that, you know, God knows us better than we know ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, I, I also find it immensely comforting to think that that nothing of who we are, nothing of what really matters is ever lost in God. Yeah. It, I mean, one of our frustrations, frankly, is trying to work out what heaven's going to be like. <laughs> That's true. Isn't it? You know, we're, we're saying, well, how can this happen? How how can it be that, you know, somebody who has dementia, aren't they going to be in need of help when they're, you know, <laughs> we, we struggle over these things. But that's that's the promise of first letter of John that, you know, it'll all it all makes sense in the end. <laughs> Amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not now, but I was going to say end. my life, my life on Earth doesn't make much sense to me most <laughs> no, of the time. So a little alone what it's going to be like in heaven, but that's another <laughs> matter altogether. <laughs> yeah. Right. Questions about that for another time. I am sure. Indeed. Yeah. Next question is, uh, and if you could start this one, Father Tony, Jesus was here with us and rose from the dead. Why couldn't he just have stayed? Why did God come to us and then leave us? Wonderful question, because I think it touches on so many uh, different aspects of the Lord's risen life. Um, when Jesus was on earth, before he was crucified and after his resurrection, his access to people was actually very limited. He could only talk to the people in the boat or the people on the hillside or the people in the upper room or the people on the road to Emmaus. He was limited by space and time in the sense that he was not universally present physically to the whole world. That's the first thing. Uh, and therefore, there were limitations, and those limitations would still be there if he were around in the flesh today. The second thing is, why couldn't he have stayed? Well, if you look at the Gospels, what you see over and over again is Jesus's reassurance that while he's going to his father, he's not leaving us alone. 
and that somehow his return to his father and the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church is the way of saying that 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 our God is is with us always wherever we are in all sorts of circumstances and not limited to a particular road or a particular hill or a particular boat and that's the the great gift of the ascension and return to the father and the the gift of pentecost is is the presence of god as spirit uh, uh with his church and with us as individuals i'm absolutely with you there um uh, father tony and you know i just have have a memory myself of times when i have f- been in real difficulties or in in the sort of situations where I've I've just had to reach out instinctively to Jesus and wanted to have a sense of him being with me and you know knowing that he was wandering around uh, out in Palestine somewhere would not have been helpful at that time <laughs> um no. you know when when you're in the dark I mean I I spent uh, most of my 30s in and out of hospital and long, long hours in a lot of pain and uh, just very much alone in hospital, you know, wondering where this was all going. And it it wouldn't have been of much help to me, I don't think, to know that, you know, if only I could get on a plane and go out to Israel, I'd find him somewhere. Um, I wanted him here and now with me immediately you know and in that respect that sense of um i am always with you even to the end of time that is the great gift that mm. that in christ we are never alone mm. we're never never alone and we're never without uh, a help um a helper close at hand in time of distress and I think that that is what his freedom from geog- from from limitation by both space and time give us. Um, and yeah. and also, I was thinking when when I listened to this question, you know, I absolutely adored both my parents, and and in one sense would give anything to see them again. But the fact that they have now gone. Um, well, it made me grow up. <laughs> you know, I have had to become the older generation within my family. And there's going to come a time, I know, when I and my siblings also die and go to God. And my nieces and nephews are going to have to step up. There is that sense of a sort of rightness of the unfolding of, of generations. You know, we can't hang on to the physicality of people and although Jesus is living a risen life in a very different way um, because of who he is there's also something that he shares in that humanity of his own of 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 letting go of the limits of physicality and yet I often talk to my mum you know chunter away or or have a joke with my father in my head because I know that because they are in Jesus as well, they're living in God's present, that they are also with me. So I think it's all part and parcel of this sense of of living in God's eternal present. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, my, my father died when I was in my early 20s. And 
while I had a, a, a loving and lovely relationship with a good man, I don't think either of us knew each other terribly well. You know, I was your typical uh, sort of buttoned-up male who didn't communicate feelings terribly well at that stage in his life. And it was only years after he died that I began to start to talk to him and say, say things that I should have said years before, but which made perfect sense. Even though he was dead to this world, he's alive in the Lord. And, you know, going back to our first question, it's, it's part of what I look forward to is the, that, that fantastic reunion of all the, those we've, as John Henry Newman said, loved and lost a while. Mm. Mm. I didn't expect there to be a link between those two questions, but clearly, clearly you found I think one, there haven't is, you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Okay, the next question is, I think, very current to our world and our friends and the, the company that many of us keep. Um, the Gospel of Mark says to go out to the whole world and proclaim the good news. But we also need to respect each person's free will as God does. So how do we find the balance with people from other religions? That is the balance between proclaiming the good news to them with the hope of conversion on the one hand, and on the other, respecting their own culture, their families and religion. Sister Gemma. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, even I have occasionally found myself on the receiving end of, shall we say, not very sensitive attempts at conversion. And they're, they're, they feel very irritating and they feel very intrusive, don't they? Yes. Um, and... I would have to say that the best way that any of us proclaims the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to live it. I don't know how many people are honestly converted by, convinced by um, solid argument. I think people are convinced by example. Um, and so the very best way we can proclaim the gospel is to live it as joyfully, as fully, as lovingly, as wholeheartedly as we can. Because, you know, people catch things. And, you know, St. Paul talks about giving people a reason for the hope that is within us. And I think we do have to do that when asked. And sometimes it's important for us to defend our faith um, or to be honest in answering our questions. And even more honest, I think, with people in sharing our own questions. Because I remember years ago as I was, it was the very, very first term that I'd become an RE teacher. I was very young. Uh, in my career as a teacher. And I happened to walk down behind two 11-year-olds who didn't know I was behind them as they were walking down the sc school corridor after a lesson that I'd given. And one of them said to the other, do you know what I like about her lessons? And the other said, no, what? And she said, she never tells you there's an answer if there isn't one. And I think it was important, actually, that... I was conveying to 11-year-olds, you know, there are some questions for which there is no easy answer. And it's important to have the confidence to say that. But at the end of the day, I don't imagine that most of the pupils I ever taught religion to 
remember the content so much as what I conveyed about loving God and about God loving us and about the power of prayer and what I lived in front of their eyes. And I just, I sometimes remember it and think, I hope to God there is nobody out there who thinks, I know all Christians are miserable because I met a miserable nun once, you know, because that would be such a sad thing. So to to proclaim the good news by living it well, and I think that is where we not only give a good example to people, but I think of my Muslim and Jewish friends and, uh, you know, Sikh friends, people of, of other faiths. It's when we share what we hold in common that we reinforce. I mean, my, my deepest desire is that through knowing me, my Muslim friends will become better Muslims. My mm. Jewish friends will become better Jews. Now, if in the process of that, they discover Jesus Christ and his wonderful gospel, I would love that for them. But I know that they will find God and are finding God through the genuine practice of their own faith. And so if my being a good Christian can help another person to live their own faith more deeply, uh, more lovingly, then I think I've got done a good job, even if I haven't converted them and brought them to Mass on Sunday. You know? Here, here, absolutely. Um, I, I think... You know, to think of proclaiming the good news as being a kind of persuasive tactic um, to to win people over, uh, you know, is, is to do a disservice to the good news because the good news is about the way we live our lives. And, and the way we live our lives, I hope, enables us also to recognise the treasures and values particularly with those of the Abrahamic faiths, the Jews and Muslims, who share so much of our heritage with us. And that's not to discount people from no faith and other world faiths. But, you know, there's so much for us to discover elsewhere, which add to the riches of our life. One of the things that's always impressed me working in schools as a school chaplain is particularly where there have been Muslim students, is what a shining example so many of them are to the rest of the community. I was chatting only last week, which was the celebration of Eid uh, in, in, in the Islamic community. Um, I was chatting to a 12-year-old Muslim girl in school uh, who had observed the fast all the way through. And we were chatting about how, you know, how you cope with thirst and hunger and all the rest of it. But the very fact that she was witnessing to her faith by that observance had an impact on her friends around her. They, they, they didn't, they were not dismissive of it at all. Actually, there was something quite quite sort of stimulating about that example. And so I think part of proclaiming faith also involves enriching our own faith by discovering the treasures that are elsewhere. And that's not to belittle our faith, but to say that God has his own roots. And God, 
God has his own roots with those who don't appear to have faith. I remember a very wise sister in Gemma, in your own congregation, Gemma, uh -huh. telling me years ago that when parents came to her and said that their daughters, you know, no longer believed in God or no longer went to church or anything, um, and, and they wanted to beat themselves up because the kids weren't believing or going to church, she just used to say to them, you know, never forget that God's gift of faith is a freely given gift. It's not some, something that's imposed on people, whether they like it or not. And that for those who don't have faith, God doesn't stop loving them. And it doesn't mean that they're, they're sort of outside of the orbit of his love at all, but that he has other roots for them. And, and we need to be able to see that in the picture. Absolutely. You know, I always used to find it so comforting in the um, old, I think it was the fourth Eucharistic prayer, if I remember rightly, when we used to pray for those whose faith is known to you alone. Yes, absolutely. I just absolutely. used to love that yeah. little bit and yeah. I used to wait for it, you know. No, no, absolutely. Because I would just count so many of my friends, my own family, you yes. know, whose faith was hidden to me, yeah, yeah, and maybe even to them, <laughs> yeah. but actually, for those whose faith is known to you alone, and you know, we have so many people we all know who we love, and who are people who who practice hope, and who practice love, and you know, those are two out of the three of the cardinal virtues, um, and. I would imagine that God knows what faith looks like better than we do. And equally, I'm sorry to say, I've known plenty of people who wear the faith badge, big and strong, strapped onto their chests, tattooed all over their foreheads, and are perfect horrors, quite frankly. Um, well, no doubt God knows their faith as well. <laughs> but, you know, it's not necessarily carrying the faith badge isn't always a guarantee. Um, of being someone who is kind of easy or congenial to live with. So I, I prefer to leave those things to God's judgment than my own, yeah, really. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Thank you so much, both of you. I'm going to put some music on Ooh, now. Oh, goodie. Let's see what comes. <laughs> yes, I'm yes, always it's excited surprise. to know. It's a surprise. surprise. <laughs> and dear listener, um, with our time, you can give a call if you like on 01223 375 564 if you would like to ask a question. Surprise music today is Servant King. Oh, lovely. One of my favourites. <laughs> Great. Yeah. 
are listening to Radio Maria and to Questions of Faith today with Sister Gemma and Father Tony. The next question we have for you this morning is that I've heard that Abraham is our father in faith. What does this mean? I thought that God was our father. And Father Tony, if you could start. Yeah, well, I think the important thing is that the word father is used in all sorts of different ways and lots of occasions in the scriptures. Um, Abraham is father in faith because it was promised to him that he'd be the father of many generations, uh, that he was one of those great Old Testament figures. Um, But it's not in any sense belittling the fatherhood of God, uh, because we also see Joseph, the foster father of Jesus Christ, as fulfilling that role, as it were, for Christ on earth. Uh, so, so fatherhood, I think, is is not something where we where we have to say that you know, because we call God our Father, that any other mention of father is is doing God down. It's uh, God, uh, Abraham's not put above God here. Sister Gemma. Yeah, I am absolutely with you. And, you know, people call you father, Tony, and uh, that doesn't do God down in that sense. Although it's very interesting, of course, that we have a recording from the gospel of Jesus saying that we should call no man on earth father. Uh, That's right. And that that gives, you know, that's always, I I think, a challenge to Catholics, really. I have a lot of of sympathy. Well, indeed, I can quite imagine you do, Tony. Um, But I I would also want, you know, to remind our our, uh, inquirers that Abraham is our father in faith. There are three of the world faiths that consider Abraham, as it were, their ancestor in faith. Uh, Christianity, Judaism and Islam, because those are the three faiths that come from the part of the world where, you know, Abraham's, the Abraham story comes from. And this is where these these faith traditions have their, if you like, historical and geographical roots. And I think that's a reason why 
we we are invited to give special affection and honor to our sisters and brothers um, who are Jewish and Muslim because we do share that reverence for and love of and acknowledgement of the one God, the one creator God. And in that respect, we do have a lot in common. And, it, you know, it always saddens me. It appalls me, actually, uh, when I hear... Um, as I did recently, uh, Vladimir Putin was trying to make a very, very clear point of um, stirring up anti-Semitic feeling among Orthodox Christians in Russia with regard to the war in Ukraine, because, of course, the president of Ukraine is, is Jewish. And I thought, you know, please, we've had this once uh, you know, in the last hundred years, we do not need this again. This is profoundly unchristian, as is, uh, you know, uh, despising Muslims. Um, those, it, apart from it's so ignorant because Abraham is our father in faith, and he's also the father in faith of our Jewish and Muslim sisters and brothers, and that's something that I think we're called to take very seriously. And that's why we refer to those these three world faiths as the Abrahamic religion. Indeed, indeed. Thank you both. Right, I have a couple of questions now that are related. One definitely from one of a question, a question from one of our teenagers called Rowan, and he asked, "If God is so powerful, why doesn't he destroy the devil?" And that oh. question is for Sister Gemma first, please. Well, Rowan, that's a brilliant question. And I want to say that there's one sense in which he has destroyed the devil um, by by bringing Jesus into the world and by, uh, you know, we say, don't we, Lord, by your cross and resurrection, you have set us free. You are the saviour of the world. And Rowan, I don't know if you've ever seen, if not, it's great to look it up on the internet, um, any of the icons, the orthodox icons of Jesus's descent into hell. There's a fabulous one. Um, you know, if you want to get in touch with Radio Maria, I can make sure that you get a picture of it to see where... Uh, it's what I call kick-ass Jesus. Jesus, it's the risen Jesus who's gone down into hell, as it were, or gone down into the underworld to yank Adam and Eve and everybody else out of their tombs to wake everybody up and say, come on, guys, it's wake up time. And he has kicked down the gates of hell that under his feet. And all the way underneath, there's this kind of dark kind of emptiness there. And underneath the flattened doors, the gates of hell, is Satan bound and chained. He's tied up so that he he has no power anymore. And Jesus is kind of splatting him. It's a really kind of Marvel type uh, <laughs> picture of, of, you know, Jesus, the, the you know, the, the superhero. And also around in that darkness are all sorts of little locks and chains. And it's all the stuff that's, that Satan uses to tie us up in addictions and unfreedoms and anxieties and worries and things that we think we can't get rid of. And what that painting is saying is that in his death, in going down into the worst bits of our life with us and right into death itself and coming through, 
Jesus has overcome everything. He's overcome the world. Now, that doesn't mean that today you and I don't still have to struggle against the worst aspects of ourselves and the worst aspects of other people, because we do. But it's a choice. It's a daily choice. And it's a choice in little things and in big things. And you know, Rowan, I, I spent 25 years as a volunteer chaplain in Europe's biggest women's prison. And I had a lot of experience of dealing with women who'd done some pretty terrible things. You know, they'd killed their own children. They'd killed their partners. They'd killed strangers or, you know, they'd robbed and cheated and done awful things. And, you know, most of them didn't wake up in the morning and think, ooh, what shall I do today? Shall I go to Tesco's or shall I go and kill someone? You know, that's not how it works. Um, very often, people kind of tip over the edge in an argument, say, you know, lose their temper and lash out because they've actually not been keeping a guard on their temper for a very long time. They've got used to a kind of habit that has been really not not good for them, that has not served them well. And every day we are invited to choose either to build up good habits or build up bad habits. And that's what freedom is. And God does give us the freedom to make those choices. But ultimately, the good news for us as Christians is that we know that God's power working in us can do infinitely more than we could ask or ever even imagine. And that includes overcoming the things that trap us, the things that hold us in bad choices, bad decisions. We are not prisoners. And that wonderful icon of Jesus' descent into hell proves that definitively. So I think God is powerful. And in that respect, God does destroy the devil every single day in the good choices that you make to be the free person you know you can be. Father Tony. Absolutely. I, I, I think that it's so important that when we look at our own life, we realise that there are days when we have to take responsibility for the wrong things we've done and to be ready to apologize and to change our ways and there are days when we can rejoice and know that you know the good that we've done is 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 noted by by the lord and by others um but that it is part of a daily choice it's not something where we're kind of either on the side of good or the side of bad all the time quite the contrary um, I, I always love that uh, program that was on BBC some years ago called Catholics, and it was three little documentaries and about different aspects of Catholic life. And one of them featured uh, a little village uh, full of Catholics, a sort of Catholic village in Lancashire called Chipping. And a delightful old parish priest who was on a uh, uh, on a on a motorized little vehicle to take him around the village went into the local catholic school just after the first sunday of lent and he got the children to read the story of the temptations of jesus um, in the desert because we'd heard it at mass and so this lovely little girl read the story out and uh, and and she she read it and she got to the point where Jesus was 
trying to dispose of, of, of the devil. And, and she said, and so Jesus said to the devil, get behind me, Stan. <laughs> I've, I've always liked to think of, <laughs> of Satan being Stan. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's my, my, it's my affectionate name for a very unaffectionate kind of person. It's <laughs> lovely. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is lovely. Except I have a beloved old next door neighbour called Stan from years ago. <laughs> oh yes, you don't want to think him. Yeah, but I like that. Okay, we have a break again now, dear listener. So the number to call. We would love to hear from you in any question that you would like to have answered by these excellent people that bring so much light onto the things that trouble us. The number is oh one two two three. Three seven five five six four. We'll have a break for a couple of minutes. Um, please do call in that time. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul, O oh my soul? What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul? To bear the dreadful curse for my You are listening to Radio Maria and Questions of Faith, and we are on to our last couple of questions. So the first question for this part is, we're supposed to be guided by the Holy Spirit. What does this mean and how do I do it? Father Tony, could you start with that one, please? Yes, I'm very happy to do that. I think it goes back to one of our earlier questions about, you know, Jesus not being with us, and why couldn't he have stayed? And the promise that God would be with us through his Holy Spirit. But I, I'd like to just ask the listener who put this question in just to 
to think of, of, of something about themselves, uh, or all of us to do that, and that is, are you self-sufficient? Do you need any help from outside ever? Or are you pretty cons convinced that you can cope with everything that comes your way without any guidance or direction? Forget for a minute the Holy Spirit, but just sort of put yourself in terms of how you deal with life generally. Are you somebody who says, no, I don't need any help, I can manage, I can manage. And if that's the case, how often does that not really work all that well? How often do we have to come crawling back looking for help? I think what's interesting about the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the reason why we turn to the Holy Spirit, we see it at work so often in our Christian life. Almost every meeting or almost every kind of gathering we have is quite likely to begin with a prayer asking for the guidance and help of the Holy Spirit. Not to stop us from making decisions or not to sort of plant into our hearts definitive answers there and then, but to, to just guide our dispositions in the right way so that we don't spend our time saying, well, all I'm interested in doing is letting you know what I think. I have no interest whatever in listening to your thoughts. Um, the guidance of the Holy Spirit is about help in, in coming and reaching balanced decisions, ones that are not weighted too heavily in one side, being open, being open to all sorts of things where ignorance can so easily make us prejudiced. And I think that's what the guidance of the Holy Spirit is about. It's, it's about recognising that we need to be freed so often from some of the limitations that diminish us. The things, I remember the first bishop we had in the diocese I work in in East Anglia said that when he was first ordained, he was a curate at Arundel Cathedral, and he said he met two approaches there from the parishioners. We always do it this way, and we never do it that way. <laughs> And, and that he said that that was so debilitating when you had one group who were so set in their ways that they were, un, were, were not open to change of any kind, uh, and another group who didn't want to know anything different from what they usually did. And I think to pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit is to say, help me, God, to be balanced and open and welcome and receptive of new ideas. It goes back to what we were saying about, you know, the Abrahamic faiths and, 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 and seeing the strengths and joys that are around us. And so that's how I try to understand the guidance of God. I, I also see it in terms of personal decisions where I'm struggling to know exactly what I should be doing and where I feel in a dilemma and say, you know, look, I've got to do one or the other. And sometimes through a, a remark from somebody, that's where 
you see God's guidance coming through. When somebody says to you, have you ever thought of looking at it this way? So there we are. That's my initial thought. Excellent stuff, uh, Tony. And I just want to say briefly to our listeners that if anybody wants to do any kind of technical stuff on guidance by the Holy Spirit, of course, it's very much part and parcel of the uh, Ignatian, that is the Jesuit spiritual tradition. It has to be said, St. Ignatius did absolutely not invent uh, discernment of spirits. That's much, much older, both in the Christian and indeed in the Jewish tradition. But um, in many ways, he kind of formulated the whole idea of how to come to to good decisions in God, as it were. And it's part of the Ignatian spiritual tradition. And it just happens, dear listener, that I teach this at the Margaret Beaufort Institute in courses that are <gasps> gasped with amazement online. So um, do look up the Margaret Beaufort Institute of Theology in Cambridge. It's not heavy duty theology. It's very accessible, but it's kind of interesting. I would say that. That, wouldn't I? Because I love teaching it. But um, it's a very interesting part of the tradition of our Catholic faith, the whole notion of discernment of spirits um, as found in the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. And, um, you know, one of the things that he says is that that discernment and reason are not two completely different experiences. You know, we use our brains, but we also use things like our hearts, our imagination, our longings and desires. So it's quite interesting to unpack what that actually looks like. So I would invite you to come along and listen to the next time I'm doing that because I teach this on a regular basis there. So welcome to my class. I, th I think I should also mention I have a cousin in Ireland who's really enjoyed your podcasts on Ignatian prayer that are on the Radio Maria. Lovely. Yeah, Great yeah, stuff. So we have that too. Um, Excellent. So you're welcome to listen to that too. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we have um, so a little bit of time left and just about time to squeeze in one more question. And this comes from, I referred earlier to young people, and I think this is an issue for all of us, but maybe particularly for our young adults and teenagers. I love listening to music of all types. Are there any dangers to listening to music or indeed watching films and other stuff like that that are not in keeping with church teaching? When do I need to switch off, Sister Gemma? Oh, what a fabulous question. And thank you so much to you who sent that in. Um, I love listening to music too. And I'm also an avid film watcher and stuff. So I get enormous pleasure out of that. But, but, but. Um, you know, our imagination is a very sensitive instrument. And the difficulty comes when we fill our imaginations with things that are toxic to us. And that's actually why pornography is such a big issue, because it is addictive. And I've worked with a lot of people who work in the sex industry um, and I've worked alongside in my prison ministry women who have actually been involved in the sex industry and who've been exploited by the sex industry. And I've also worked with women who've been on the receiving end of men whose sexual instincts have been um, brutalized by an addiction to pornography. And it's because their imaginations kind of get 
poisoned, as it were, and and pornography and violence and things of that nature become normalized in their minds. So when do I think I need to switch off? I think if you're watching anything where actually the images stay with you and you start to kind of internalize them or become profoundly held by them in ways that you can't actually, you can't switch off. When do I need to switch off when I realize that I can't? <laughs> I think is probably like any addiction, the, the really big red danger signal. But I would say that there are amber warnings as well. And the amber warning is anything that actually <sighs> turns your imagination, your feelings, your desires into areas that are damaging and toxic and that means damaging to other people as well as damaging to yourself where you are inclined through the use of images to think of other people as the object of your wishes your desires your instincts because people are not objects none of us is an object and that's what you know violence and pornography does um, our imaginations, we soak things up, you know, and it's very easy to soak it up. It's much harder to get rid of an image once it's imprinted on our minds. So the best thing is never to let it have house room anyway. That's my thought. Thank you. Father Tony, I know we lost you for a couple of minutes there. Um, we, you, have a, you, and we have a couple of, we have about three minutes left. Do you have anything to add? Knowing you uh, might not have heard everything. Is I, <laughs> you didn't hear you lost, it. Because I lost you. Uh, I only heard the last 15 seconds of what Gemma had to say. But I suspect from what I heard that she was saying pretty much the same kind of thing that I would have said. And that is that we know how easily uh, all of us, whatever age we are, are affected by persuasive um, media of all types. So we can get hooked on films, on music, on social media, where minds can be, you know, shaped and and ideas formed and, 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 and people can move in the right or the wrong direction. And that's why I think I pick up what Gemma said at the end, which was very much just don't have anything to do with the things that are likely to be dangerous. But I'm sorry if that sounds a bit inadequate, but I didn't hear the rest of it. It's, it's just nice to have you back, Father Tony. For it this is indeed. <laughs> yeah, that's My safety blanket had gone. Ah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> OK, we have come to the end of our questions of faith today. Um, thank you both so much, Sister Gemma and Father Tony, for giving us your time um, so generously. Uh, Father Tony, could you finish with a prayer and a blessing for us? Yes, I'm bearing in mind our questions today uh, 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 in different directions. I'm going to use uh, my own sort of paraphrase of my favourite collect of the year uh, uh, at Mass, and it's the collect for the day after Ash Wednesday. And it's, it's a prayer which is used in other sort of shapes and forms uh, for guidance. Lord, be with us in all that we think and say and do, Guide us by your continued help. May every thought and word and work of ours begin under your guidance, continue under your inspiration and be brought to its conclusion by you who live and reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen.